Okay, we're going to start with Isaiah, and you're going to have to keep this in mind. I'm going to read with the scripture on Isaiah, which is uh, the main portion of the um, scripture that Sproul uses in uh, the chapter. So, uh, and I'm sure this is familiar to you. You've heard it. Uh, starting in Isaiah uh, 5 and uh, in verse 4. Now, you've got to consider where Isaiah fits in this whole scheme. As, um, you know, the, the greatest Old Testament prophet. Okay, now if you exclude Moses. Okay, Mos- because Moses is sort of in a class by himself. Of all the rest of the prophets, Isaiah was the the most prominent of the major prophets. And um, just, you know, a quick comment as far as the place prophets got placed in that they were meant to be the spokesmen for God. My name is Mike. Good to see you. I started a few minutes early. You are actually early. You just can't tell. Depends how high my anxiety level is. Um, you know, Isaiah and these prophets were given the unique responsibility, and boy, it was a responsibility because they got tabbed and very well could not walk away from the responsibility. It wasn't a job that you could just say, nah, I don't think so. It just wasn't that way. When God tabbed you, you were it. Whatever happened at that point. And I mean, in Jeremiah's case, uh, God said, now look, Jeremiah, I'm giving you this job. You should know nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to turn from their way. Nobody's going to go listen, but you do what I told you to do, and you'll be considered faithful. That was Jeremiah, wasn't Isaiah. All right, so we get to Isaiah, this major portion of the Scripture. Um, And in verse 5 and verse 4, God says through Isaiah this, what more was there for me to do? What else was I supposed to do in my vineyard that I have not done or have not accomplished? What? And that's when the people is. What more was I supposed to do? Okay, what parent hasn't said that? And what more was I supposed to do? So that sort of sets the stage. And then Isaiah gets into seven woes. Number one is in verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house, join field to field, until there is no room for anybody, so that you are so that you are to live alone in the midst of the land. Alright, what he's talking about here is woe to those that practice greed and materialism in my chosen country. Greed, materialism among you, my chosen people. Now, you've got to put this in context of God saying, I supply everything you need. The same thing happened when they were in the desert. Okay, What did some of those folks do? God said, I'll supply to you daily. What did those, some of those folks do? They went out, took more than they needed for the day because they didn't trust the provision of God. All right, that's, that's along these lines. Woe to those who practice greed and materialism. In verse 11, woe to those that have no concern for God. Chapter 5, verse 8. We're in chapter 5, Isaiah. Chapter 5, verse 8. Okay, so we're, woe to those, greed and materialism, 
Woe to those who have no concern for God and in fact would would prefer drunkenness over uh, living in the Spirit. Uh, The result of that is not a woe, but it says, therefore, because of this, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge of me. Uh, Verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin uh, as if with cart ropes, who say, let God make speed. Let Him hasten His work that we may see it. And this is simply a challenge to God. You're not paying attention. I can sin with impunity. You'll never know. You'll never take any action. I'll never get corrected. I will do as I decide to do. Based on my own judgment. Okay, now this is Isaiah pronouncing his woe to Israel as God's chosen and only spokesman. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. There you go. Thank you. Okay. We're in Isaiah uh, chapter 5. We are studying the woes. Not as far as uh, those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. That's 18. Challenging God. Woe to those. This is a good one. I'm now in 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Is that? Oh my goodness. I mean, mix it. The erosion of doctrine. And let's start here. The erosion of doctrine in the church. Absolutely. Okay? We're not talking about them, whoever them is. We're talking about the erosion of doctrine in the church, how doctrine gets avoided. Those who call evil good and good evil, woe to those. Woe to you. This is Isaiah pointing his finger. 22, woe to those who are heroes and drinking wine, and those who pervert justice, in other words. Uh, corruption. And this is considered corruption at a, get this, governmental level. That's the way this is considered. Okay, so he's talking now, he's talking to Israel. Israel. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, I will consume you, for they have rejected the doctrine of the Lord of hosts. Okay? Woe, 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 woe. Is that six? Woe, 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 woe. Six. He gets to chapter six, which is where Sproul landed. Now, hopefully, you read the chapter. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Okay? And I said, Woe is me. 
I know you guys are bad and you're serious and you're drunkards and you're perverted and you're doctrine. Now I have seen the king and now woe is me, the spokesman of God. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Where is there any salvation for me? I'm a dirtbag and I live among dirtbags. Where do I go? Where do I run? Now this is interesting. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, are you looking for good news on all the woes? That is good news. The action of God on the ruined man and He says, I have touched you. You are atoned for. See where the Reformed people get this whole atonement thing? See where this comes from? That He's sitting there groveling in his magra. Okay, his response to this. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who am I going to send? Who's going to go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Okay, his reaction to the purification that the Lord gave him was, I'm ready to roll. Send me. Now, he already had the life of a prophet. He was talking about more responsibility. Send me. I'll do more. The idea of the view that you get of a holy God sometimes is so overwhelming that all you can do is say, I'll do something. Just let me do something. Let me serve you in some way. Okay, let me let me put that aside. We're going to get back to Isaiah. Let me go to your reading. You know now, you know, you don't get this with the other guy in the other class. I am doing two books. He could never do this. He could that other guy could never accomplish this. I'm just that's why we're here. I'm just saying. Not quite reach your level. He could never do this. Now, if you're in another class, Andre's saying the same thing. What did he say when he made some comments? He said, well, fine, then go over there. He said, but you know, you've got to fill out essay questions. <laughs> okay, so we are talking about the incomprehensible God. That's the handout I gave you. And Bob, does your friend have a... Yeah, got Okay, good incomprehensible God. Now there's a portion in here that um, talks about in the article that I gave you, there's four pages of it, we're not going to read every word. But the very attempt to try to corral the image of God is going to lead you to idolatry 100% of the time. 
You cannot get there. Now, this is Reformed thinking. Thomas Aquinas did not agree with that at all. In fact, Thomas Aquinas in the early thousands, around 1200, said in fact and listed five ways that man can and is able to reason himself to a correct knowledge and understanding of God. Without the Scripture. Not the Holy Spirit. Aquinas. It's hard to do. Aquinas. Okay, so I'm not saying that the Reformed principle is without some disagreement. Okay? But it was the Reformed folks, went there from 1600 or so, that started moving in this area of theology away from Aquinas, okay, and the Roman Catholic Church, away from the theology that he wrote and started moving to a theology that was theology proper. You've heard Dr. Jacobs talk about this. Theology proper means that you do everything with God first, all your understandings, everything that you do, and then underneath all that is activities of man and what man does and what else you see in the creation. But, the theology of God is first and, first and foremost and everything else has got to agree. Mm-hmm. So you start with God and you go down. And eventually the bottom of the pile you find man. So it is God first, man second. It is not man first, God second. So, having said that you're going to come to an incorrect understanding of God left to yourself, I ask you this question. What do you think God would be like? <coughs> Having set you up to, for failure. <laughs> Lizzie, tell, tell these folks what, when what, I asked you that question a couple weeks ago, tell them what you thought. I don't remember the question. Ah. <laughs> but, um, I would say God is completely holy what was your vision of God in eternity past? What did uh, you say? From a childhood? Yeah, what did you think? Uh, oh. I, I thought, I saw God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sitting in a circle chatting in, in eternity, and they were kind of, it was kind of grayed out. You know, it wasn't real clear. There were clouds and stuff. Sort of misty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's just a child's view. Well, okay. How long did that linger with you? I still see it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, I'll, and I'm not criticizing in any way. I mean, we get these mental images. Yes, please. I don't. I thought about this a lot this week. Okay. And I don't have an English word to say God is exponentially more holy, exponentially more loving Father. Everything is exponentially more than I can put an English word on. Infinite. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Now, and please understand, I am not criticizing your vision. That I am not doing that. What, what I am saying is, and, and what, what's going to come out in the reading is, what we tend to do in this is we start with man and then we try to put that on God. Okay? It's inescapable. I don't know how you do that otherwise. You know, you start to think, well, okay, I'm like this, and so God must be like this. Well, no, He's not. 
See, that's a problem we have in trying to, in the legitimate effort you're making to understand God, to seek after Him, what Tozer is going to say, and I'm going to get there in just a second, but what Tozer is going to say, you're doomed to failure on this, guys. Because you can't get there. And this is the whole trying to stick the ocean in a six-ounce cup. Mm -hmm. You are prone to failure on that. No, not prone. It's guaranteed. Guaranteed. Hey, okay. So, yeah, not. See, I have. I go blank. You know, when I start to think about God, what God is like. I mean, I tend to just go. Yeah. Blank. You know, it's. And I mentioned this to you before. Like sitting in the ocean and looking at the ocean, there's no ships, there's nothing out there. I mean, the vastness of it and the ongoing nature of it, that's kind of the impression that sticks in my head, is it? You know. That even excludes all of his attributes. You're just talking about trying to envision God. But I think that Isaiah in, in 6 really, and how he was so undone, um, destroyed, over a, a presence that he had never experienced despite the fact that he was a prophet. He was a prophet of God and had communed with God. That is exactly right. And he was completely undone. And um, then grace came into the picture. Mm, absolutely. That's a beautiful picture. And he was energized and yes. ready to go. Mm. Please let me go. Please let me serve you. Find a place for me to serve you. I don't care what you ask. You know, I can see how people can do that so easily, though, because we're made in His image. So once you say, oh, God made me in His image, I must have some of His attributes. So that's where you go down that slope. You know, that's where that slide begins, that you actually... Can I think you're identifying with somebody that is not a human? Yeah. It's beyond, way beyond. beyond way beyond. And this is called holding something in a steady state. You know, where you seek after God in one hand, and you diligently pursue Him through the Scripture, because the Scripture is the only revelation He has made of Himself. Mm-hmm. Other than creation, we talked about this last week, other than creation, and that bit that you get innately of some concept of the knowledge of God, you get that innately. God's second level of revelation is creation. And then, of course, is the third revelation of the Spirit that the Holy Scripture becomes real and alive and you understand the atonement. Okay, so there's three levels there of God's revelation. But the only revelation he has made and authorized is through the Scripture. Yet, yet, but Christ came and said, I have come to make God known. There you go. Mm -hmm. So, what is that element of knownness that that Christ was talking about? Okay, so I'm on one side of this saying, God is incomprehensible. True. You're going to take the option that says, no, no, no. Jesus says, I have come so that you may see the Father. What do you mean you haven't seen the Father? Well, I'm not saying God's not incomprehensible, but I'm saying that Jesus wanted us to know Him 
and so you came for that reason. No, absolutely. And then, so, to what extent do, does our does our knowing Him expand or come encompass? Yeah. I mean, it, and of course, that's a. I yeah. have the answer. Okay, Carmen. Yeah. Psalm eight. Okay, says. When I see, I look around and see all that you have created. Right. What is man? What am I? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you try, and you try. You, now that we can see out of space, and and somewhere down there, there's a speck that's me. Yeah. It, yeah. It's just overwhelming that you know that that he should regard yeah. me. Yeah. Let's get to the article. Uh, and I've got this thing bracketed. I made some. I made marks on it. Just I did such a bum job last week. I numbered the pages, and you'll notice visually how much improved it is. Does anyone want? Nobody. Nobody notices, of course, that the holes, perforations, are on the wrong side of the page. Well, I, mean, I had to screw this up somewhere. Okay, that's incomprehensible, isn't it? How you can make that mistake? Okay, God incomprehensible. Here's how. Here's how Tozier starts this particular chapter, and this is. I'm spending time on this because this is such, so critical to your proper understanding of the holiness of God to understand He is incomprehensible. You are heading into deep space where there is no end. Here's what Tozer says. Lord, how great is our dilemma. In your presence, silence best becomes us. But you know, the love that we have for you inflames our hearts and it forces us to speak, constrains us to speak. Were we to hold our peace, the stones would cry out. Yet if we do speak, what are we supposed to say? Teach us to know that we cannot know, but the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit, but the Spirit of God. Let faith support us where reason fails. And we shall think because we believe, not in order that we may believe. Okay? So that's a jab at Thomas Aquinas that you can reason yourself to a proper understanding of God. And Tozer is saying, no, you can't. We think because we believe. We chase after God because we believe. Not in order that we may believe. Okay? Now let's say one. The paragraph starts, we learn by using what we already know. We learn by using what we already know as a bridge over which we pass to the unknown. All right? Now, this is what we're talking about here. We are trying to take what we know about man, and we're trying to put that in some supernatural place on God, and that's going to be the wrong approach always. So understand that, that everything we're doing here is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> End of one. <laughs> okay. Uh, even the most vigorous and daring mind is unable to create something out of nothing by a spontaneous act of God's imagination. These strange beings that populate the world of mythology and superstition are not pure creations of fantasy. The fancy, the imagination created them by taking ordinary inhabitants of earth and air and sea and extending their familiar forms beyond normal boundaries. Okay? You see Tozer's point? 
Here's where you're sliding to if you're going to try to start with man and to understand God. That's where mythology came from. Now, that, that's not a secret to anybody, right? right. I mean, when you think about Zeus or whatever. Come on. They are the last parable. They are like something we already know. The effort of inspired men. Okay, go to the hash. The effort of inspired men to express the ineffable has placed a great strain upon both thought and language in the Holy Scripture. This, these, being often a revelation of a world above nature, and the minds for which they were written, being a part of nature, the writers are compelled to use a great many, quote, like words to make themselves understand. Now let me stop. He's going to get into Ezekiel. Here's the point. Can you appreciate the problem of God through Moses trying to explain what he did in creation? Can you appreciate the problem of saying, um, look, Moses, uh, there wasn't anything here, and I just spoke it, and bam, it happened. Uh, so I'm going to give you some license there, Moses. Put that in your own words. But that's... Right? How do you do that? And Ezekiel is what Tozer's going to get to. It's a terrific example of the problem that we face to understand the... How do I... What word am I going to use? JP, what word am I going to use? Extravagant, uh, magnificent actions of God. I mean, what... No, the tragedies. The effort of inspired men to express the ineffable. Okay, I've got there. When the Spirit would acquaint us with something that lies beyond the field of our knowledge, he tells us that this thing is like something we already know. But he's always careful to phrase his uh, description so as to save us from uh, slavish literalism. For example, when the prophet Ezekiel saw heaven open and beheld visions of God, he found himself looking at that which he had no language to describe. Now, right, I'm, I'm assuming everybody's familiar with that first chapter of Ezekiel. What in the world is he talking about? Flying saucers. Well, I mean, that's a lot of people get to that conclusion. Then he's talking about alien spaceships, and I mean, you get all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. You know, based on that. But that's legitimate. What is he talking about? What's he trying to describe here? What's he? What's the prophet trying to describe? What he was seeing was wholly different from anything he had ever known before, so he fell back upon the language of resemblance. Quote, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was <coughs> like burning coals of fire. Appreciate the problem. Okay? You're sitting in Ezekiel's spot. Do you think your language skills were superior to his? Okay? Now maybe they were. Alright? But, what are you supposed to say about what you're looking at? The nearer he approaches to the burning throne, the less sure his words become. I'm not taking the time to look at Ezekiel 1, but you know, you'll know you reflect on this. And a quote, And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne. As the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. 
And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. You see why we take man and we try to understand God because we understand man way better than we can understand the incomprehensible God. This is the problem. Now, that, now again, consider. These prophets are really good men. You know, they didn't get pulled off the street. They got tabbed by God to be His spokesman. And the way He struggled. So the top of page 2. So in order to convey an idea of what He sees, the prophet must employ such words as likeness, appearance, as it were, the likeness of the appearance. Even the throne becomes the appearance of the throne. And he that sits upon it, though like a man, is so unlike one that he can only be described as the likeness of the appearance of a man. Incomprehensible. When the Scripture states that man was made in the image of God, we dare not add to that statement an idea from our own head and make it mean in the exact image. Now, ring in your heads what is going on in modern Christianity that when you become saved, you become a God. Or worse, you become God. Modern Christianity. Now, this is trying to solve the whole self-esteem issue. And I'm going to get to that. There's a great, I found a great quote that I want to be sure I remember to get to about a clinical psychologist, William McDougall, that studied Christianity. I'll just do it now. Um, William McDougall, I'm, going to, I'm blowing part of my train of thought here, but William McDougall, turn of the century, decided to study what, he was not a Christian, he wanted to study the effects of Christianity on people and what it did to their lives. That was the whole focus of it. hundred years ago, he did it. Does this large survey, and he comes to some conclusions, and I want to remember the words. He, but, you know, he looked at people that supposedly were redeemed, okay? Born again wasn't in vogue in 1912. And... He said, I see fear. I see intimidation. I see an unsureness of who these people are except for the fact that the reaction to their spiritual conversion is self-loathing. Clinical psychologist, 1910, roughly, comes to the conclusion that people that he observed in his study sample all had fear, intimidation, and a great degree of self-loathing. Okay, Here's the but. He said, but. In normal society, self-loathing is a really negative kind of feature. He said, in the church, with these people that face conversion, self-loathing turns them into obedient, productive, kind, compassionate people. <laughs> Has totally the opposite effect, according to William McDougall. And if I, maybe I'll run across that quote again. And I was astounded at that. Okay? Faced with God, you get an Isaiah-type response. That's what he's talking about. 
face with God, you get an Isaiah response. So yes, self-loathing, is that not what Isaiah said? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I'm a rat. God touches him, heals him, declares him atoned for. Isaiah's response is more self-loathing. Well, maybe in his memory. But now it became, I want to work in the kingdom of God. Send me. I know I can do something. Compassionate, loving people, self-loathing in the church turns it into compassionate, loving people. How about that? Enough of this self-esteem business. Uh, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God. And I'm still on page two, about two-thirds of the way down. Uh, there's a hash there. Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. Now, I'm asking you to think for yourself about yourself. What you have done. Not asking for confession. I'm asking you to consider what you have done. To reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get Him where we can use Him. Or at least know where He is when we need Him. We want a God we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like, what He is like, it, what, and what He is like is, of course, a composite of all the religious pictures we have seen. All the best people we have known or heard about, and all the sublime ideas we have entertained. If all this sounds strange to your modern ears, it's only because we have for a full half century taken God for granted. He's writing the latter half of the, of the 1900s, and I just say it's gotten worse since then. We have taken God for granted. The glory of God has not been revealed to this generation of men. The God of contemporary Christianity is only slightly superior to the gods of Greece and Rome, if indeed he is actually he is not actually inferior to them, in that he is weak, is viewed as weak and helpless, while at least the gods of Greece had power. Here, when I was six, seven, eight years old. My thinking about God was the same as I thought about the truant option. Okay. If I didn't go to school, he was going to get me. Yep. <laughs> and if I did something bad, God was going to get me. God was going to get you. And, and that was my young experience of what I thought about God. Yeah. We put God in what we can conceive as manageable terms. So that we can come to some understanding of Him. And what I'm stressing is the incomprehensibility of God will negate all of your efforts to reduce God to your mind. Now that's alarming, isn't it? Because I want to know God. I want to know God. I want to know God. I want to serve God. I'd rather that God knows me. Isn't that what uh, uh, Lamentation says? Okay. The, the yearning to know what... Uh, 
this is the one through the fourth paragraph, that you're on page three, the yearning to know what cannot be known. The yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to taste and touch the unapproachable, arises from the image of God in the nature of man. Deep calleth unto deep, and though polluted and landlocked by the mighty disaster theologians call the fall. The soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. Now how can this be realized? Elizabeth, you wanted to make this point about ten minutes ago. What was the point? How can this be realized? The answer of the Bible is simply through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ and by Christ, God effects complete self-disclosure. Now, I said incomprehensible. Tozer is now saying full self-disclosure. Are those two incompatible? The answer is through Jesus Christ our Lord, in Christ and by Christ, God effects complete self-disclosure. Oh, is, he, is he saying God affects his self-disclosure through his son? Because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen me. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. So on one hand of this, I'm saying God is incomprehensible and consider, considering the infinity of every aspect of his being, infinity in knowledge, infinity in time, Infinity and in love, in goodness, in compassion, in justice, every attribute he has is infinite. And tell me you can squeeze that into your head. I don't think we can understand infinite. However, okay, so I'm saying incomprehensible, and yet the scripture says. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Are those two, what my question was, are those two things set side by side a contradiction? No, they're just intention. There are no contradictions in the Bible. There are no contradictions. There's just tension. Alright. Seems like a contradiction. Come on, Terry. Seems like a contradiction. Because we don't understand it. Like we don't, we don't understand have it. I was witnessing or talking, I hate that term, to a young guy when I was working, and his answer was that if he couldn't understand it, he he couldn't believe it. Okay. And I said, I I, I would not worship a God, but I could explain to you the point I worship. Exactly. And you said, you're not going to completely understand. It. Yeah. We can't. And plumbing the depths of the scripture. I mean, that's why you, you continue to study the scripture and continue to learn for your entire lifetime. Because it's living. It's a living, breathing word of God, the Logos. And even um, Jesus' disciples didn't fully understand who he was. I mean, and they walked with him and watched him every single day and wrote about what he did and said. But they didn't... Yeah. We are 2,000 plus years yeah. later. Yeah. See, the alarming part of this is 
that us good PCA reform folks are just as prone to come up with false images of God as anybody else. <laughs> right? We do not have a lot as far as this issue is concerned. We just don't. Now, I think we do here, PCA in general, do a way better job of understanding correctly theology properly. I'm not dismissing our efforts here. I'm just saying to you, it is the natural course of man to try to squeeze God into a box that you can understand. I'm on page four. This is the second to last paragraph. What is God like? If by that question we mean what is God like in himself, there will be no answer. If we mean what has God disclosed about himself that the reverent reason can comprehend? There is, Tozer's words, I believe an answer both full and satisfying. For while the name of God is secret and his essential nature incomprehensible, he in condescending love has by his self-revelation declared certain things to be true of himself and these things we call his attributes. I need an hour and a half, honey. Okay, where? I want to get to that. Okay, uh, so this was, I had the guy's uh, name right, McDougal. Um, this reverence, this is a quote uh, from his work. This reverence has been significantly defined, uh, talking about conversion, by psychologists. William McDougall as, quote, the religious emotion that exceeds all emotion. Talking about conversion. And he goes on to say that few uh, merely human powers are capable, talking about conversion, are capable of creating in people exciting reverence, blend of wonder, awe, we might say, but also fear, trembling fear, and gratitude, and self-loathing. So McDougall is looking at this conversion experience and people around 1910, and he's saying he's never seen anything like it that produces this set of observances that include fear on one hand, self-loathing on one hand, and gratitude on the other. Thank you, God, for showing me what a worm I am. And that's what he's talking about. Yeah. Yes, honey. Jerry, don't you think that the church today, though, in an effort to be inclusive and be seeker-friendly, oh, yeah. are... They're, they're taking the fear factor totally away from what awe and reverence really yeah. is supposed to mean. Um, there, there is no fear. And that God is sort of an add-on to my life in whatever way I want to see Him. Yeah. The, the, the whole, I agree with you. The whole, and we've been involved in a church that did that, made the swing towards seeker sensitive, and wanted God to be a open and welcome, and they started referring to him as a grandfather that you could walk and sit on his lap. We had a lady. We had a lady in Miami 
that left the church because it said, you know, the, the fear of God is the beginning. Of, she said, no, she will not. She will no. God is love, and literally left the church. Okay, God is love, and a you know, yeah. condescending love yeah. at a magnificent level that we can barely understand. Uh, Better fear God, and yet uh, the church is kind of doing this. Yeah. Kind of doing it to ourselves to try to make God understand to His people, to you know, to our people, and, and so this whole concept of the incomprehensibility of God. I'll sum up with this: You've got to hold that if you can in one hand. You've got to understand the vastness of the revelation of God and what He makes of Himself, and in the and then in, in the other hand, understand that you are to diligently pursue Him. Hold both of those. Now, who said tension? I guess it was Chris that said there's a lot of stuff in the scripture that appear side by side that in, at least apparently are in tension to each other. This is one. God is asking on one hand to diligently pursue him. And on the other hand, he's saying, I am infinite. You will never know. Okay, now, does this, the incomprehensibility of God, cause you to not diligently pursue Him? No. Is that what this causes you to do? See what I mean? And this is not meant to push you away. It's saying, come plums, plumb the depths of God. Come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And I started the whole thing in that quote out of Isaiah. What I what have I not done? What have I not done with my vineyard? What else was I supposed to do? Come on. The pursuit is worth it. Alright, I'll stop. Um, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the grace you give. I thank you for your patience uh, with us. You know, these things are difficult for us. And it's like the more we look, the more we don't understand. I mean, in a level of understanding that we want to understand. You know, let us honor you always with our behavior and our thoughts and our actions and our money and our time our relationships. Let these things honor the name of God. Let it be so. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.